Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top leaders tell us how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today, our leader is Deb Whitman, the Chief Public Policy Officer at AARP, one of the largest nonprofit organizations dedicated to people over 50. She'll talk about a special training program that prevents this group from scams and financial exploitation. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Deb Whitman leads research and policy development at AARP, one of the largest membership organizations in the world advocating for its 38 million members. The group looks to solve big problems for people over 50, both on the government level and through special products and services. And they recently tackled financial exploitation, a problem with a multi-billion dollar price tag, one that devastates older populations. When people are exploited, their health suffers their personal view of themselves suffer. It can lead to consequences all the way up to death. It, it sounds dramatic to say this this program can be life and death for people, but really it's it's their financial life and their, their view of themselves. To tackle this problem, AARP worked with banks, credit unions, and the financial services industry to design a program that doesn't just protect nest eggs. It helps keep everyone from bank tellers to customer service reps to financial advisors aware of vulnerabilities they might never have considered. The key step to solving big challenges. It's creating tools that help people to understand problems and empower them and and give them empathy in order to do that. This work has already trained 14,000 frontline staff members in banks and credit unions. Deb will talk a little bit about this training's role in scaling empathy and how empathy can help identify key problems to be solved. She'll also explain how the pandemic reshaped some of her old habits and why she's now embraced meditation. But first, she'll explain why financial exploitation is such an important topic to tackle. Unfortunately, too often, people are scammed, defrauded, exploited out of that retirement savings that they have set aside. In fact, one in five older adults is exploited over the course of their life. And, and that's probably an underestimate because most people feel ashamed and uncomfortable talking about having money being taken from them. And so for a long time, I worked on trying to get money into people's accounts. I think I came to the realization that we needed more help in making sure that it didn't go back out of the accounts. And while ARP has a number of programs called like our Fraud Watch Network that tries to empower our members to understand and frauds and what to look for, we also knew that we needed partnerships and people that could be standing next to them at that moment that money was about to leave their account. And so we created this training program. It's called Bank Safe. And it's really focused at the frontline workers. And we have three different versions that we've created. One's, one for banks, one for credit unions, and one that we just launched for financial services industry, so for financial advisors. And this training was developed with our members so that we really understood the types of exploitation that they were facing. And then with the industry itself, so that we used the language that was comfortable. We used the terms of art. We used the legal frameworks um, that they were required to, to work under. But more importantly, we added a lens of both empathy 
and empowerment. And so we made people really understand what somebody goes through who's being defrauded. We made them understand how they could ask questions to, to unearth things that might be going on that they had a suspicion about. And then we empowered them with language um, and tools and techniques. And we've studied this um, with Virginia Tech and found that it's highly successful. In fact, the people who are trained save 12 times as much money as the people who weren't trained. They're more likely to report it. And most importantly, they step in before money leaves an account, leaving that person whole. That creates a, a huge virtuous circle because then their customers and clients are feel that, that their business actually cared about them and that they have affinity going both ways. It's creating tools that help people to understand problems and empower them and, and give them empathy in order to do that. Nobody would think that they didn't have empathy, but the reality is, is that there's always more that we can understand about other people and other situations. So can you tell me a little bit about the, how the training was set up so we have an understanding of uh, why it was so effective in bridging those empathy gaps? So a lot of training is about compliance. If you see this, you must fill out this form. And this one was using storytelling of other professionals who recognized something, who spoke up, and the personal satisfaction that they got in making a difference. We also gamified it. So even the learning and the knowledge gaining was in a fun way. We listened to how they want to be taught. So you can use closed caption because sometimes people are doing training in a public space and can watch it. You can start it and stop it when you need to. And the best thing is from ARP, because this meets our social mission of trying to help people, we're providing it for free. So any bank, credit union, financial institution that wants to sign up to use it can do that through ARP. Can you tell me a little bit about how storytelling fit into this training? So we used videos. We also used uh, written stories. We had sort of case studies, all of those to make make these issue real. And it's particularly because fraud and exploitation can be a really complicated and ugly thing. It's often done by a member of the family, which makes it hard to, to speak up when you see somebody with their grandson and they're trying to withdraw a whole bunch of money, understanding if that's legitimate and something that the older person wants to do or not. And so the, the stories help you feel comfortable in serving in that role. And again, empower you that that's part of your job and that, that you are helping that person by asking questions. You have a PhD in economics. Just giving these folks the numbers alone wouldn't have done the trick. What does this tell you about story as another lever in bridging gaps? I do spend a lot of time with numbers as an economist, but I do think that the the heart of the matter is the individual that's affected by those numbers. And the more that we can address the whole person. Another thing I see in my discipline is we sort of cut people up and work on sub issues like their health and not understanding that if they don't have enough money for prescription drugs, that their, you know, their health may suffer. Or we look at, like I said, getting them to save and not fixing the leaky drains that happen. 
I think I was affected myself with his training when my father-in-law got a call from his grandson. I say that in quotes, who said he just, he had an accident and he needed money sent to him, cash sent to him right away, but don't tell his dad. And dutiful grandfather ran to the bank to withdraw the money. And luckily the person was slow about transferring it because they had some suspicions. And by the time he realized his grandson wasn't in an accident and was perfectly fine and the, and went ran back to the bank was really excited to see that that money hadn't quite left. So these are the types of things that you know, I've got stories in my own family. We hear from our our members all the time, and and then we try and create solutions for them. Any company or industry has to constantly work its empathy muscle. What did this teach you about empathy blind spots? ARP is really the voice of 38 million people, but we're really the voice of aging in a society. And while I think companies and institutions understand that there is this huge market of older persons, they don't always talk to them directly and they don't segment their markets and they don't hire older workers that will serve them and they don't advertise to them. And so a piece of the empathy that we try to do in our organization is to try to get key businesses to to really think about the longevity economy. We did a report that showed that nearly 50 cents of every dollar right now is spent by somebody over age 50 in the United States, and that's going to grow dramatically over time. And we also work with businesses to try and think about their workforce and the issues that having four or five generations all working together, the impact of that on the value of that in their economic growth. So these are the things that we try to take from the people that we represent and the people that we hear from and and translate into the stories and the business cases and the needs of the broader people that we're trying to influence. No company or person thinks that they aren't empathetic, but clearly there are always opportunities to improve. What has this taught you about the impact of empathy to solve big problems? Well, I think this one really showed me how we can scale empathy. And I think that that isn't always easy to do, but by creating this platform, it's a learning platform that people can go through, watch the videos, answer questions that were actually are having an impact on the marketplace as a whole. I think sometimes a single story can be heard by one person and be impactful, but getting that story into the hands of 14,000 people that we just did in the last nine months isn't easy and it has to be designed carefully. And you do need those partnerships in order to get scale. Sure, sure. If you hadn't had this in place, what would happen? So we've already saved $26 million this year as our projection. And that's, again, in the first 19 months. So that's $26 million that is in the hands of people that wouldn't have had that if this program wasn't in place. And and let me be clear, it's not just that you lose money, but oftentimes when people are exploited, their health suffers, their their personal view of themselves suffer. It can lead to consequences all the way up to death because if, 
and the average person loses $120,000. If you're in your 70s and 80s and you lose that much money, it's not as if you can make it back. So it, it sounds dramatic to say this, this program can be life and death for people, but it's their financial lives and their view of themselves. Can you tell me more about that measurement and how you get to that $26 million saved? So as good researchers, we did a controlled study where some people were trained with our training and some people weren't. We measured how many times they reported. We measured the amount that they reported. We measured their satisfaction. And then we project employees that were trained saved a total of 900,000 versus those who weren't trained saved 54,000. So the, the scale of the amount of money, about 12 times as much was saved by the people who were trained. Four times the number of, of reports were made. So, so we use that to project going forward the impacts of, of this. And that's something that we do as a whole organization. We try to use impact measures of success, not just outcome or output measures. And through this program, is there a trait that you depended on? You're like, gosh, like if I didn't have this, um, I wouldn't have been able to do this work without it. I really want to go back to the co-creation and human-centered design because, again, it's, it's partially listening to the person that's affected by, by exploitation, but it was a whole lot of listening to the industry themselves. And we had about 1,200 bank tellers and, and members of credit union looking through it, giving us comments saying, oh, that doesn't make sense to me, or I wouldn't have said it like that. Here's how I would have said it. So that it is not in ARP's voice. It's really in the voice of people being trained and really meeting the needs that they have. And I, I think that that's, that's a, a rare mix where we get the consumer and the provider working together in order to create something that's meaningful for both of them. We had a little thing called a pandemic and we're still grappling with it right now. How did the ARP pivot to, to address what the aging population needed? How did they change and what did the ARP do to sort of change with them? Yeah, I wish I could say it's been easy, but it really hasn't. The people that have been most affected, both from serious illness and from death, are mostly the older adults. And often those who are living in uh, care homes, nursing homes, assisted living facilities. A piece of the problem has been ageism in that those weren't deemed as important in order to get things like PPE in the early days, understanding how to do visitation so people aren't left alone and apart from their family caregivers. So we've been working at the state, local, federal level, really all out for the last nine months on making sure that older people are more protected, are included in clinical trials for vaccines, have the information they need. As I mentioned, we're a communications organization and we really turned on a dime as we pushed out evidence-based information that was tailored to their needs. COVID-19 has hit our population particularly hard. And as their voice and and understanding the questions that they have, we've really tried to, to fill a void in that area. You are the co-chair of the you know, World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Healthy Longevity. How has that work been changed by these recent events, by all of this upheaval? 
in our meeting immediately after March, the conversation amongst all of our members was, how can we help? And we held a series of five webinars. One was on long-term care facilities where the majority of deaths were happening on the early days. One was on home and community-based care for people that have chronic health conditions. We talked about ageism, looked at low and middle income countries and their specific issues and needs and resources. And then finally, we also looked at loneliness and isolation, which has been, you know, the second epidemic in this pandemic. These five webinars were turned into blogs and just released research report. And I think it moved the needle of looking at aging issues within WEF, but also we had some impact with the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and other bodies in making sure that older people weren't left behind in this pandemic. This also ties right back into the power of story. Yes, as somebody with a PhD in economics, I bet you didn't think you'd be having such a role in a communications-centered organization. How powerful has story been in driving change for how COVID is impacting this population? Yeah, I I think it has been so powerful. And and this is one area, though, where the data also just shines through, particularly on on the issues of of morbidity and mortality amongst our, our population. But the stories of what the frontline workers in care homes have been going through without having adequate equipment, the stories of people feeling lonely and isolated, the stories of how we're all dealing with death during this time. I, I know it's an issue that I face even with my own staff. I've I've gone to the store four or five times to buy packs of condolence cards for all the people that have, have passed. And it's hard not to be able to give them a hug or attend a service. It's important that we use the numbers to raise the profile, but it's also important to really get into the details of what people are affecting and use storytelling in order to to help move hearts and minds. COVID upended a lot of people's habits and routines. Was there a new habit or practice that you took on that you thought, you know, why wasn't I always doing this? Is there anything that comes to mind? So I've always read about the power of meditation and the huge amount of research on how it helps in so many different ways, but never had the time because I was always, uh, I felt like on airplanes. And I've every day now meditate. And while I still have monkey mind and probably focus for about 15 seconds in the 15 minutes that I'm sitting there, it has really been transformative in my ability to react to things, my ability to be a good parent, uh, a better boss. So I do think that this is a habit I'm going to continue for hopefully the rest of my life. What's been a sense of that before and after? What's something that you do now, naturally, now that you've, you've been doing the meditation that maybe wouldn't have come to mind before? I think it's not what I do. It's what I don't do. I think the ability to not obsess, overreact, to be able to understand what's the difference between a thought and what's going on in the world. I mean, these are particularly crazy, difficult times and the stress that I know my staff are under in their homes, in their communities, the not ability not to be together means that small things can sometimes bubble up. I think I'm uh, much better at not letting them boil over, even when they do bubble up. And I think, as I said, I think I'm a better mom because of it. Is there a book that you think everyone should be reading 
that can really open their horizons, teach them something that they haven't considered? I read a lot. And so, and I'm writing a book about the, the second half of our life and really how unprepared we are as a society for for that second half. So I've been doing a lot of really interesting reading for that book. I just finished the book Lifespan by David Sinclair that talks about the biomedical research that's uh, going to affect the um, underlying process of aging. I read Deaths of Despair by Anne Case and Angus Deaton about life expectancy dropping. Angus is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. And they were looking at the data that showed that particularly for for people with low education, that we've had a fairly dramatic drop in life expectancy in the United States. And they go on to hypothesize how to do better. But I think it's, I think it is a time period in which progress is very unequal, and where a lot of gains in life expectancy have been really at the top. And just from my own work, I know that, you know, people at the top 1% of income, men live 15 years longer than men at the bottom 1%. Women at the top live 10 years longer than women at the bottom 1%. So we're seeing not just a, a rise in income inequality and wealth inequality that have been talked about, I think, for many decades, but a huge rise in life inequality. And that's, you know, time that we have on this planet with our families. And I think it's something that, that has been under the radar. And, and what, why should they be reading a book on that? Like, why, why is that important for them to have in their knowledge bank? I think it affects our politics. And I think it really affects, back to the storytelling, how people see their future. We've always had this idea of the American dream that my kids are going to do better than me and they're going to live longer. And if that's no longer the case, what does that mean for America and for society more broadly? That was Deb Whitman. Before we go, don't forget to check out the World Economic Forum's brand new podcast on the environment, House on Fire. Here's a sneak preview. I am here to say our house is on fire. We have now to be really aware of the dangers of what we're doing. We're reaching tipping points all around the world. We've heard the warnings. Now, what are we going to do about it? This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. We have to rise to this occasion. Welcome to House on Fire, a new podcast from the World Economic Forum that dives deep into the biggest environmental stories on the planet. Each week, we aim to bring you closer to the changemakers working to save the world. The entrepreneurs disrupting what we eat. We have a product that meat eaters love, you know, and it's a multi-trillion dollar meat eater market. The scientists going the extra mile to save threatened species. We have to travel with an elephant to ward off tigers. The innovators shaking things up. Big companies just need to ask themselves, what's the bigger risk to fundamentally rethink their business model or to have it made irrelevant by people like us? And the campaigners who never give up. That's what my frustration is. I just, I don't see why we're not moving faster. We'll share big ideas. One trillion trees will sequester more than 200 gigatons of carbon. We have to get on this right now. Who's working on this? Visionary leadership. It's easy to say that you stand for something, but the public knows the difference between those who are serious and those who are not. And wisdom from across the world on the great challenge of our times. Human beings need to understand that we are part of the nature. We only one species of the nature. Join me. Kiara Kelly. And me, James Bray, for the first episode of House on Fire, as we focus on the fight for biodiversity on our planet. The natural world is the source of all wonder. We are bound up together. House on Fire. 
coming November 17th. That's a highlight from House on Fire, brought to you by hosts James Bray and Kiara Kelly, all launching this week. Get that and all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all of their help in the production of this episode. Thanks, of course, to this week's guest, Deb Whitman. And thanks to you for listening. Please rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch podcasts. And follow us online on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina at the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.